You know, for centuries, the ultra-wealthy have been putting their money where their mouths are by investing in fine wine. And now, with Vint, you can do that too. At Vint, we offer SEC-qualified investment opportunities of fine wine and spirits curated by our experts with portfolio managers. With Vint, you can invest and diversify into the most sought-after assets that have a history of price appreciation. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co. You know, for centuries, the ultra-wealthy have been putting their money where their mouths are by investing in fine wine. And now, with Vint, you can do that too. At Vint, we offer SEC-qualified investment opportunities of fine wine and spirits curated by our experts with portfolio managers. With Vint, you can invest and diversify into the most sought-after assets that have a history of price appreciation. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co. Welcome to another edition of Around the Coin. I'm your host, Naka Umbella, and this is BTC Behind the Coin series, where we talk about Bitcoin and the general state of the crypto market. It may come as no surprise to my listeners that I'm very bullish on Bitcoin and the overall crypto market. I consider myself a Bitcoin maximalish. I'm not a maximalist because I do hold other coins apart from Bitcoin. And the reason I'm so bullish, I mean, there are a number of reasons, and we'll go over that uh, in this in this podcast. But really, what I'm trying to do lately is bring on more people who may not be as excited about Bitcoin as I am, so that we can learn what their positions are and pretty much, you know, learn more about Bitcoin because we'll hear the other side. So one of those guests. Uh, or one of those critics of Bitcoin I have with me today. His name is David Gerard. David Gerard writes the crypto writes the cri- cryptocurrency and blockchain news site Attack of the Fifty Foot Blockchain, and he's the author of the 2017 book Attack of the Fifty Foot Blockchain: Bitcoin, Blockchain, Ethereum, and Smart Contracts. As well as being a crypto journalist, he also works as a Unix systems administrator where his job includes keeping track of new exciting technologies and advising against the bad ones. So, and I'll have his link in the show notes so that you can visit his website. So welcome, David. Hello. Yeah, good to have you. All right. So let's um, get right into it. Let's talk about some of the main criticisms of Bitcoin. One being um, the one I hear a lot is is that Bitcoin is too slow, it's too expensive, uh, and and the expense part is actually why we had a fork. So we even had an internal war, and and Bitcoin Cash split off because of that. So so what are you know do you do you agree with this sentiment? I mean you know give me an idea of what do you think is like the main criticism? What's your main criticism of Bitcoin? I mean. There's quite a lot of things to criticize about it, but basically it doesn't work for almost any of the jobs you can think of. It's a sort of Swiss army knife that does all the jobs worse than the existing alternatives. It's, um, I mean, it was originally conceived as, quote, an electronic peer-to-peer cash system, unquote. That's like the subtitle of Satoshi's white paper. It did okay for a while because it's, it was quite small and scaling up. <laughs> But we got to about mid-2015, and the network clogged. 
which was the source of much anger in the Bitcoin community for the next few years after that. Um, where transactions went from being fast and nearly free to being slow, unreliable and increasingly expensive. I think in the 2017 crypto bubble, it peaked at something like an average of $55 per transaction, something like that, 55 60 And that's just the average, by the way. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's gone down a lot since then because people have stopped sending quite as many transactions through it. But this was a failure to scale. Um, other cryptocurrencies, the, the way that the actual markets that used crypto, the consumer markets did, I mean, markets such as, say, the darknet markets, um, they tended to move to other cryptos instead of Bitcoin. Um, they moved, They like Monero, although Monero is rather low in volume and liquidity. Uh, they're not so keen on Bitcoin Cash, they use it a bit. Um, but yeah, um, now you can sort of use Bitcoin a bit. There's a small consumer use case, there's a small remittance use case. Um, it's not a slam dunk for either of those. But um, yeah, so basically the trouble is that Bitcoin failed to scale. And that's actually a real problem. You, there are various propositions to make it scale, like bolt the Lightning Network on top, but the Lightning Network doesn't work yet, and there's reason to think it never can properly work, that sort of thing. And it's sort of a cludge on top, where the answer to Bitcoin's problems is don't use the Bitcoin. Right. Can I can I answer to some of the things that you've Absolutely. brought up? So, yeah, so those are, those are valid points. Um, and I think what is happening in our age in the I call it the microwave age where you can you know have a complete meal in 5 minutes where you have information at the tip of your fingertips there is a lack of patience among us uh, just as a society you know everyone wants everything instantly right away bitcoin is a protocol first and foremost and because it's a protocol it takes time for these things to develop. I had a podcast. My last podcast was on the Lightning Network. And if you, I mean, most technologies take a really long time to develop. So the internet didn't just happen overnight. It took years. I mean, it, it you know, started with people in the 60s, really, right? And, it, and, and people built on top of that. So I think what's happening is that, at least from my perspective and, and others who agree, you know, our Bitcoin proponents is we see it as a protocol that not only is uh, providing a parallel financial network um, that's decentralized, but it's also allowing for a decentralized web. And we see it very much as a protocol similar to TC. Uh, PIP. So we see it as a protocol that's, you know, for on the lower layer and it's going to take time for that to scale. We're still in beta and I'm old enough. I'm going to age myself to remember when the internet was terrible for video. And there were many, many companies who had a lot of video applications that just were too clunky and didn't work properly, but it took time. Right. And now, you know, everything we stream, a lot of things, movies, whatnot. So, I think we're still. I think we're still too early to consider it a failure. Um, See, I don't think that's a very good comparison because if you say, "I'll just compare my technology to," ooh, let's pick a random technology, the greatest revolution in human communication since the printing press, then my thing might be very good. Yeah, but 
you have to justify even making that comparison because I'm a technologist. I'm a system administrator. Um, most new technologies don't work out. Like, most of them don't really go anywhere. You can say, well, if I compare my thing to a successful technology, sure, but you could also compare it. Why, why is the successful one? Why not Bitcoin is the Ford Pinto gas tank of money? Why is Bitcoin not the cold fusion of money? That sort of thing. You, you see, even if a technology is feasible, that doesn't actually works and so on, that doesn't mean it's economically feasible, for example. There's all sorts of ways for a technology to just not really ever go anywhere. And I think that you, it, if you look at the sort of S-curve of adoption, um, I, I don't think a lot of Bitcoiners consider the possibility, what if this is all there is and we have to go beyond? Because remember that Bitcoin was literally the first paper and string mock-up of the idea that you could even do this particular trick. Um, you know, Satoshi took a whole bunch of old technologies. Uh, people are traced back, you know, um, where you take a ledger and you add a consensus mechanism. And um, it's it was really impressive. I mean, I don't want to play that down at all. But, um, you know, it was the sort of the first and worst. So that, But then that mock-up was pressed into production. And so obviously it had scaling problems. So I won't say philosophically that it's impossible it'll work out, but at this stage, 10 years on, with repeated failures to achieve the promises and the promises mutating over time, I'd say the burden of proof is 100% on the people saying this will work out. Well, here's here's the thing. I think it depends on what you're looking for Bitcoin to achieve. And I think, so I'm going to, talk about a couple of points that makes it as revolutionary as the internet, okay, and as paradigm shifting as the internet. So the first thing is, right now, we do not have a money um, or, or any kind of pay- financial payment network that is censorship resistant other than Bitcoin. Okay, so Bitcoin started that. So so let me start, let me finish with all of the points and then you can, you know, you can speak to that. So the first is uh, it's censorship resistant. So anyone anywhere in the world can send and receive Bitcoin if they have internet access. Okay, sound money. What does that mean? There's a limited supply of 21 million tokens or coins issued on a predictable schedule. And I think that's probably the single most important thing. And why is it so important? Now, this is not my original idea. I, I actually heard of this idea on from from a Twitter, somebody I follow on Twitter, who's an, an amazing, um, I, I don't remember his name. I think it's Murdoff, Muradov or something like that. But he pretty much uh, has a, a, a hypothesis that we're trading our valuable time and our valuable life force, really, our labor for, which is finite, by the way, as you know, (laughs) everybody dies, and we only have a certain amount of time. uh, And everyone gets the same amount of time every day. So when you're trading that for a currency that is not limited, right, and that's constantly being diluted, you're pretty much behind the eight ball, all of the time. And that's really what inflation is. So you're trading your man hours uh, for, uh, for, a, uh, for something that is not equivalent, right? It's, it's being diluted. 
However, if you're trading your, your man hours, people hours for the, <laughs> for the people who are politically correct for something that is limited, it makes more sense, right? You're not behind the eight ball. And I've never heard of anybody really describe it that way. You know, you, if, if you really think about it that way, you realize that, you know, the, the more money that's printed, which is exactly what the government does, they just print money when they feel like it, pretty much, um, that, then you're, you're a slave. You can't catch up to that. You just can't, right? So your money becomes diluted. With Bitcoin, you have a limited supply. And that doesn't mean that there's not enough to go around. I think people confuse scarcity and with, um, or an abundance with, with lack, like there's not enough. You can devise Bitcoin into eight decimal places. So there's enough for everyone based on the fact that you could, that it's divisible. Um, it's got eight decimal points, right? Um, can't the, the another important thing is it can't be confiscated unless the person has the private key. So only the person with the private key can produce the signature to spend it. This is why in our community we say not your keys, not your Bitcoin. And then lastly, but not leastly, but not least of least is you are your own bank. So you can verify and validate the transactions if you run a full node. So you could really you know, not only just participate in the, the health of the network, but you can make sure that the, the rules are being followed, right? Because you ha- also have a node that you're running. Now, th- these four points that I mentioned, this is groundbreaking. We've never had this in human history, and it allows us an alternative to the corrupt uh, financial system that nearly collapsed, and we're bailed out and, and, and the brunt of the, the burden um, was on the regular common folk, right? You can ask the Irish people how they feel about it. <laughs> you can ask the, you know, the, the people in Iceland. Like we continually are being screwed, pardon the expression, by our governments um, because, you know, they don't care. So we need an, alter- an alternate system. And Bitcoin provides that. Now, it's not perfect. I totally agree with you on that regard. But I think for these four points that I just mentioned, it's it's an alternative and it's worked so far. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, the censorship resistance, now, that's actually one of the design parameters of Bitcoin is irreversibility. This, I think, is also its biggest problem and why it doesn't really work very well as a payment system because irreversibility means consumer protections are basically impossible or you have to clutch them on top using escrow mechanisms. Um, It doesn't really work well. The existing financial system has an undo button all the way through specifically to alleviate fraud and so forth. Um, You'll have the case of Steve Wozniak where he was ripped off because... He sold some Bitcoin to someone via PayPal, and the PayPal transaction turned out to be fraudulent. And, you know, Steve Wozniak, he can take that. He's quite well off enough that he went, oh, well, listen, learned. But this comes through all the way through. Um, Now, the other thing is that the censorship resistance, I remember when it used to be called saying Bitcoin was censorship proof, and then the claim sort of got moderated down to resistant. And, you know, what's resistant mean? It could be anything from totally resistant to slightly resistant. Um, 
certainly you can sen- you can't sense the transactions before the fact, and that's a really important attribute. Um, you can totally sense the transactions after the fact. That is, penalise someone for having made a transaction because Bitcoin is, of course, not anonymous; it's pseudonymous, and tracing blockchain transactions is a fun and entertaining pastime for the people who like that sort of thing, um, e.g., the authorities. Um, we have other aspects of what you said. Um, the idea of sound money comes from Austrian economics. Now, it's interesting talking to people in Austrian economics. I don't have surveys or anything of their opinions. This is just anecdotal. I mean, other people might have contravening anecdotes. But they're interested in Bitcoin, but they don't take it seriously as sound money. The objection they always come up with is the fact that you can copy and paste the code and you've got another cryptocurrency. So it's sort of endlessly replicable. It Now, they do find it interesting it doesn't quite do the job that they want of a sound money. They want gold for that. Um, so you can, uh, there are thousands of altcoins because everyone else thought, I'll make my own magical internet money. And Bitcoin is the biggest and largest. And you can argue that um, it's qualitatively different, but I don't really think it is. And the crypto markets, both the trading market and the payments market, don't treat it as special. They treat it as just another one of a bunch of things loosely called crypto assets that flow at the speed of the internet. Um, We also have to consider that governments literally don't just print money off the top of their head whenever they feel like it. That's not a thing that happens. It's something that is considered with great trepidation because literally everyone says, but Zimbabwe. Yeah, I was about to say, tell that to the Zimbabwean people. Yes, that they're the failure mode of what happens when you get it wrong. And literally everyone keeps that in mind. It's in the Genesis block. Chancellor Darling authorizes and more quantitative easing. But we're talking about literally the chancellor, the treasurer of a large international economy. And he is the elected official at the top whose job is literally to decide that question. And it was a decision that wasn't taken lightly, you know. Um, it's And more fundamentally, the one of the big problems that, the, um, that uh, proponents of the Bitcoin strain of Austrian economics have is convincing the more conventional Austrian econ- economists that Bitcoin is sound money and they just don't really buy it. As I said, they're very interested. Uh, if you go to Mises.org, you'll see lots and lots of articles where people talk about stuff that's happening in Bitcoin and so forth. But they basically don't buy the value proposition of Bitcoin. They think it's an interesting experiment, which it is. But um, the other basic problem is that Austrian economics doesn't actually work. It's literally a conspiracy theory. It literally originated in anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about international Jewish bankers, and which is has always been has been reprehensible stuff for about the last century. Um, this is. Um, And they tried to clean it up and try to put it on some sort of formal basis. But when Ludwig von Mises himself wrote at length about how you couldn't possibly make empirical predictions in economics and therefore he was going to refuse to, um, this leads to problems in taking this seriously in the world. Um, The limited money theory, I mean, it's limited if you consider Bitcoin a closed universe. But as I said, the actual real-world markets don't do that. They don't consider that a closed world. The closed world is all the things marked crypto assets, and what we actually see is that, as composed to the relative restraint of governments in doing quantitative easing and releasing more currency, um, we see people 
freely creating new currencies off the top of their head, which may last for varying lengths of time. Certainly, Bitcoin was the first and will be the last, but the markets are still treating these as all one sort of butt pool of stuff. So I think there's a lot of a lot of these points are highly arguable in a lot of directions. Um, if you want uncensorability, actual cash will often do the job and it's less traceable than Bitcoin with a known address. Yeah, I was actually, I'm glad you brought up cash because that is what Bitcoin really is. It's, and that's why it's irreversible. If you, when you spend cash and you, the, the reason Bitcoin was invented is because we can we have to be in the same place at the same time to trade cash, right? That's how cash works. We can't send cash online over the over the internet. So this is actually like a cash system as opposed to a credit card. That's why it's irreversible, right? It's it's really cash that you're using. That that's what it's that's what it's replacing. But it's So it's not suitable in large quantities, only in tiny ones. Well, you know, you can send it in large quantities. Uh, there are escrow services. There, there are other ways to make sure that, you know, if you're going to send, you know, 10 million, and I've seen 10 million, 20 million cross the blockchain. So people obviously send very large quantities, but it, it, it should be treated as a cash, as a, as a bearer asset class. That's really what it is. Yeah, this is why the, this is why the finance system that we actually have, the one the world runs on, um, has the undo button all the way through to ensure against fraud and fat finger errors and so forth. Yeah, well, you know, uh, and, and that makes sense. And I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm a maximalist, so I don't think that ish. Bitcoin's going yeah. to, yeah, ish. You know, I'm not, I'm not completely. You think Bitcoin's going to replace everything and, and going to replace banking? I think there's still a place for banking. I don't think that it's going to replace every financial network. However, I think it's uh, a worthy alternative. Um, and I think that and I think that it's another asset class. It's a new asset class that I think should be uh, given serious consideration for some of the things I mentioned. Uh, but I don't think you know you should put all your eggs in one basket. I think that would be a little insane. Uh, and in terms of the the um, well, you mentioned something else that I wanted to 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 address. Um, I think it was uh, what was it? Is the sound money um, that you mentioned that it's um, yeah? So the 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 code can be copied. We all know that every there are many forks of Bitcoin, but there's only one. And the reason it's really important is there's something called we call the network effect, which obviously you know of. So the network effect is is what makes Bitcoin unique. It's been around for ten years. Um, it's the most secure network. And I think that the the market, at least the crypto market, is now educated enough to differentiate between the original Bitcoin, which is the longest chain, because I think this is also another misconception among Bitcoin critics. Bitcoin is a social contract. You know, it, it doesn't have any intrinsic value. I'm not one of these people that, you know, <laughs> believe that it, it, it's, it's the value that the holder, hodlers, which is what we call ourselves, people who hold Bitcoin. What we give Bitcoin is what 
gives it its value. So because it's a social contract, the community decides what what Bitcoin is. And then that decision of what Bitcoin is, is then automated in the code. And that's what, so the code, the, the lower layer actually, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it, it supports the social contract. It supports the, 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 the consensus of the hodlers, of the holders. This is why I think it's fascinating. I don't see it as just a phenomena that's technical. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a technologist. I'm not a developer. I'm not a coder. So I, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't justify it that way. I could just justify based on how I feel about it, which is, I think it's a social contract. And I think it's a really important one at this time in our history. Now, this is, again, this is not my original thought. This actually comes from a guy that writes a, a, a blog called Uncommon Core. Actually, there are two of them, Su Zhu and Hasu. Hope I'm saying their names right. Um, and they're at uncommoncore.co. And this is where I'm getting a lot of my actual oh, yeah. ideas from. Uh, they, Yeah, they write some really great articles on it. But uh, I think there are a lot more people. Is that, like that Hasu Flies blog? Pardon? Is that Hasu Flies blog? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. It's so I, I disagree with him on a lot of stuff, but he's always thoughtful. Very. He's very, yeah. There are a lot of really great people write, writing amazing things about Bitcoin. I mean, we can go on and on for days of, you know, different people Absolutely. sort of having their, uh, seeing seeing their own field and, and how what it means to their particular special specialization, whether it's biology or economics, obviously. Um, so I'm really, I mean, I've never been excited about anything <laughs> this much because um, I see so much potential. And I think that there are a lot more quote unquote regular people <laughs> like myself. I'm just a recruiter. So I'm not an economist. I'm not a mathematician or a, phys- or a physicist uh, or a computer engineer or anything like that. I'm, you know, just a regular person who sees a lot of potential. And I think that we're a silent majority in this space. I don't think a lot of us are on Twitter. I don't think a lot of us are doing podcasts. And this is why I'm doing this podcast because the space could be extremely intimidating for people who are not technical. Um, there's a oh, lot totally. of technical. Yeah. Isn't there, there's a lot of technical jargon. Sorry. This, this is one of my big problems with um, a lot of Bitcoin discourse where um, you get a lot of technologist supremacism where you have people who are putting forward this thing that is literally intended to change the world and turn everything upside down. And then if anyone objects, I'll say, oh, you can't code. You must not know anything and shut up, um, which is a really bad objection when you're literally trying to change the world because it's totally their business. Yeah. Um, I, I don't – technologist supremacism is that thing where people who can code think that because they're good with computers, which happens to be a highly marketable skill at this point in time in the world, therefore this is personal virtue on their part, not just them being lucky and fortunate. All right. So we were talking about technology supremacy, and there are many of them among Bitcoin maximalists. And I agree with you. I think that's a huge problem in this space, particularly if you want to get mass adoption, because not everybody understands yeah. code. I, so, yeah. It's, mm-hmm. um, a, I mean, it, it goes back to Bitcoin's origins, which was some very, very astute uh, computing people, um, some of whom were quite 
sensible and humble about it, the fact that technology is there to serve human ends. Others just went, if you can't code, yeah, go away. So that's, I think that's a wrong attitude when you're talking about a thing that's literally intended to turn the world upside down. Also, I see a lot in, particularly in the wider sort of crypto and blockchain space, you'll see a lot of people who they market something that's obviously rubbish, like some dodgy ICO scheme or something. And the hard bit is, oh, we'll do it with a magical piece of technology. No, no, don't worry yourself too much about it. Just give me your money. So you have a sort of, it's not about, none of this is about technology. It's about the human interaction with it and with money and the world being complicated and trying to deal with things. It's, which is what you were getting at before, that Bitcoin is a, fundamentally a social contract. Because any, any form of money or anything that anyone uses as a currency is a social fact. It's a thing that people agree amongst themselves. Exactly. So we agree on something, David. Oh, totally. <laughs> I mean, I find yeah. that the um, main difference between me and... There, there, there are some Bitcoiners who get a bit over the top about their sort of cultish devotion. But um, most... The majority are fine. <laughs> you know, reality, <laughs> like exists, reality exists and things are fine and they're more optimistic than me about it all. But, you know, I mean, I think that, as you said, crypto assets of all sorts, that is all the things vaguely in this pool, you know, um, somewhat the more decentralized coins like Bitcoin or even Ethereum, Ether, um, centralized tokens like Ripple, um, ICO tokens, which are usually completely centralized um they are they will become more regulated sort of assets because if you're dealing with money and you're dealing with the world and you're dealing with things of value in society then that's a legitimate interest for society to have i don't so i think and um i think that increasingly crypto assets will become a more normalized regulated part of um things um this will lead to more trouble converting to and from crypto assets and conventional currency like the know your customer gateways will get tighter and tighter um, a lot more closer examination um, but I think that's the way it'll go like we've seen this a lot like with the collapse of Quadriga um, as I understand that's still like all over the news in Canada weeks later yeah I'm, um, I'm actually in Canada yeah and, yes. and also use them I didn't have anything on there thank god but yeah, there, there's definitely, we have a lot of problems with the on-off ramps yeah. in this space. And I think that's another criticism you, that you hear, and it's a misconception. People hear hacking all over the news. So, you know, billions have been lost in Bitcoin, and that's not really the truth. The truth is, is the services that are interfacing with the Bitcoin protocol, they're the ones being hacked. They have nothing to do with the protocol. I think that's, I, I don't buy that. I think that you can say, well, the blockchain's perfect. Well, fine, you know, the blockchain works and cryptography's fine, but it's not a standalone blockchain. It's part of a system and the system includes the bit where people use it. And that totally gets hacked all the time. No cryptographer will tell you, any cryptographer will tell you, you don't attack cryptographic system head on the strongest part. You attack around the edges. You attack around the weak bits. You attack the people. Um, it's like a six-inch steel, a six-inch six thick steel plate door mounted in a cardboard frame. It, it's super secure. But Bitcoin isn't just a blockchain. It's a system. It's a system of people using it. Well, it's it's it would be like saying 
your bank, your local bank got robbed. And as we know, there are lots of bank robberies and thinking that the US dollar should be affected based on the bank robbery. I mean, it's ridiculous. Banks are going to continue to be robbed and it doesn't have an effect on the rate of the US dollar at all, ever. You know, there's so much counterfeiting and that doesn't seem to have affected whether or not people have um, faith in the US dollar. It has no effect. And we all know that there's lots of counterfeit money floating around. They don't even accept $100 bills at small stores anymore. They just will not accept them. But if somebody gave you a $100 bill, you would say, thank you very much. <laughs> you know, and you take your chances with it, right? So it's the same thing. I, th- I think you can say that the Bitcoin system does actually get lots and lots of hacks and security is really hard. Not, not the system, not the, the, but people have tried to hack the actual Bitcoin network and they've never succeeded. And there's a huge bounty. I think it's a couple billion dollars. I mean, there's reason that they, you would think that they would devote a lot of time to it. So they hack the peripherals, which is like a bank, and they will rob the bank. But that has nothing to do with Bitcoin. And in fact, if you keep your own private keys, you don't have to worry about If your the- plan is to try to get someone's Bitcoins, then there's all sorts of ways to do that because you're trying to get the social fact of the Bitcoins attributed to you, not to them. Um, and I, I think it's a highly arguable point. I, don't, I really don't think you can cut it down to, oh, this part is perfect, therefore Bitcoin has never been hacked because, you know, the bits that aren't perfect are the bits that people actually use and interact yes. with. Well, here's here's the thing. This is why education is so important in this space. And again, a lot of misconceptions. So your Bitcoin never leave the actual um, network itself. It just gets transferred. So when you're sending Bitcoin, you're literally transferring ownership. And I think this is why... It's such a beautiful system. I think you really aren't, though. I think you aren't. You're transferring the keys, but the fact of ownership is a legal fact. It's not a cryptographic fact where you can say, can you, is, you have to have the concept that it is possible to steal bitcoins. And that's totally a legal fact that you can steal bitcoins because that means the ownership on the blockchain is different to the ownership in law then the Bitcoins have been stolen. Okay, so I'm using the wrong terminology, and this is something. So ownership meaning that as long as you have your private key, right? And again, let me sort of backtrack. Let me go a bit back. When you have a wallet, the wallet is an interface. A lot of people think when they have a wallet, the Bitcoin actually gets downloaded into their wallet, and that's not how it works. That's the key. Exactly right. The so when you when you when you use words like stolen or hacked, there's this there's a misconception that it's the actual network that's being hacked, and that's not the case. That's what I'm trying to clear up. And again, I mean, it takes time to understand these concepts if you're not a technical developer. The actual protocol, Yeah. yeah. The actual protocol is strong, but it's all the. So the sort of system around it, which people interact with, which is where hacks happen and where people take the bitcoins. Exactly. So it's important for regular people to get educated and make sure that they are holding their private key and they're not leaving their Bitcoin on an exchange because that's where 
you might lose your Bitcoin if you if you leave it with someone else, right? That, I guess that's just my point. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it's the thing is this really Bitcoin custody turns out to be a super hard problem, yeah, it is. which is why trying to get large investors in and institutional investors into Bitcoin, the thing they worry about is, yes, but what about actual custody, meaning keeping those keys secure? It turns out to be a huge, expensive problem. Um, be your own bank is a sort of vision of hell for most people <laughs> because, you know, they'd have to be their own financial institution level chief security officer. They'd have to know every possible attack at every level. Um, you know, if, if you leave your keys, if you leave your coins on an exchange, the exchange will get hacked. And sorry, your coins have been taken. Have a nice day. But you have them at home, put it on your PC. Your PC gets hacked. Or you... Your hard disk crashes, taking your coins with it, or you put them on your ledger wallet or whatever, and there's a hardware hack, or the interface software is hacked. These are things that have happened. Yes. And it's really, really difficult. It, it, this is what I mean when I say that irreversibility, that key design factor, is actually one of the biggest problems. Um, it, I, I see the reason for it, but it still turns out to cause so makes things really unnecessarily difficult. It's so easy to mess up and lose your coins. I agree. I agree. And I think that that more and more companies are coming on board to address those custodial issues because it is very stressful, right? To to be responsible for X amount of money, however however much you have a Bitcoin. To have that kind of burden is a lot for most yeah. people. So there are That's, companies... Which is why they tend to use exchanges as sort of cheap banks, and they think, oh, this is like a bank. And, well, it sort of is, but it really isn't in terms of security. You know, and you have something like Quadriga, where you have a $200 million institution that turned out to be literally one guy with a laptop yeah, and some servers. Pretty crazy, and, and pretty Amazon insane. Cloud. Well, well there, there are, like I said, there are things coming on the marketplace address some of those issues uh, that give multi-sig right? So you have your, you have a key, you entrust your key to another institution. And it, and the bank has something like this as well. If you do wire transfers as a business, you can get your accountant to, you know, you can't wire X amount of money, you have to get them to also approve it. So they have a key. So this is something that they're bored from banking, quite frankly, right, is the multi-sig approach. And so, um, so that technology is becoming more and more common in the space, but again, it's a gradual process. And you know, the libertarians, I think, um, take for granted that they are maybe emotionally and psychologically prepared, based on their political leanings, to to have that sort of you know em- uh, mental mental anguish if you want to call it of being your own bank but the average person does not want to be their own bank they just don't so the, yeah. so so the so the ecosystem has to build really solid custodial solutions which they are i think um what's the company in the US uh their fidelity so fidelity uh if you go to fidelity digital assets i believe FidelityDigitalAssets.com. They are building a, a really robust custodial solution for yeah, institutions. Yeah. So, so I think that these things are coming on board. They're coming online. Uh, and I mean, you can't get a better endorser than Fidelity, right? Like that. That's 
you know, they, they are synonymous with, with, um, with trust in, in terms of, in, in terms of the finance for financial people. So I think that, you know, the fact that they're coming on board and they're very bullish about the entire space and they're creating solutions to address some of the concerns that you mentioned, I think is, you know, makes a world of a difference, but there has to be a lot more solutions similar to theirs for the average person because it is, it is really stressful. Uh, so another main criticism that I hear all of the time, and it's the probably the most valid, it's actually one I agree with, is that the energy consumption of Bitcoin is just out of control. It's out of control. It consumes as much electricity as some small nations. And this is a problem. I think it's a valid critic. It's one of the biggest ones, yeah. I like... I talk to non-Bitcoin people lots and they know that I'm the guy who knows about crypto. And um, so they tell me all these things. And I routinely, now this is absolutely routine, um, that they hear about Bitcoin and I think, oh, it's that weird computer money thing. Oh, yeah, a lot of people made money. A lot of people lost money. Oh, yeah. Then they find out how much electricity it uses and generating the concomitant amount of CO2. And they get really angry. Mm-hmm. They get actually angry that someone could do such a thing, which as a payment network, Bitcoin is literally the most inefficient payment network ever constructed in history. Um, it's, it's, it, it, I mean, this was warned of really early on. Hal Finney, the second Bitcoiner, um, Satoshi's beta tester for the Bitcoin software, he like tweeted in 2009, hmm, we're going to have to think about what to do about the CO2 if Bitcoin ever gets popular. <laughs> um, I mean, it, I, the arguments for proof of work are that it provides security for the network. That is, it provides economic security. That is, you need to use that much hash power to hack the network. Um, but there's a number of issues of that, specifically that the threat model is, who are you protecting against? The answer is other Bitcoiners. Now, you can see the, the argument for proof of work is it provides security, which it does. The idea of economic security where you need to spend that much hash power to try to mess with the uh, network. Although there are actually lesser attacks you can do, like down to about 16% of hash power, there's ways to selfish mine and affect transactions there, um, just not with certainty. But um, the trouble is, I the thing about that security is who's the threat. The threat is you're protecting against other Bitcoiners. So to some extent, it's a problem that causes itself. And there's, you have to think about, well, what if we didn't do the thing that sets up this threat? We could spend less electricity. So, I mean, there's lots of things you can spend electricity on, right? Christmas lights or the existing financial system or something, which does a heck of a lot more transactions per second than Bitcoin does for the per power but um it's every other thing that you spend electricity on like christmas lights or data centers or whatever the electricity is a cost in bitcoin it's the thing you're literally spending to um, get the bitcoins it there's no upper limit except for the price of bitcoin where mining equalizes over the course of months to one bitcoin costing one bitcoin to mine um so I don't know how to fix the proof of work issue, except that 
when the price of Bitcoin goes down, the hash power goes down, and the mining goes down. So that's about it, really. Um, so I don't know how to address this because uh, Bitcoin, I really don't think Bitcoin software is ever going to stop from doing this as long as it's called Bitcoin. Yeah, well, some of the some of the arguments I've heard is that what happens is miners actually move to parts of the world where there are inefficient energy markets. So they actually uh, will use large amounts of u- unused energy that's you know going to waste anyway. Mm, so that's, in China, that, that was that used to be the case in China, but I've looked into this and increasingly what you're seeing is there was there was actually a lot of isolated like hydroelectric outlet uh, plants and isolated coal plants as well so it's not all renewables um which weren't hooked up to the national grid efficiently but increasingly those are getting hooked up and so um they're getting the bitcoiners are getting pushed out so that's there there's really isn't a lot of straight there isn't really is a lot of stranded uh, power generation in the world at the moment well, I think that eventually we'll see miners start using renewable energy sources, right? So I think that's coming. It's it's it's. But I I agree. I think it's a problem right now that we have that yeah. we need to address. This is but a complicated and vexed issue be- that I've looked at in a lot of, from a lot of directions. It's like really, really quite complex. Um, but things like yes, they do use renewables. No, they don't actually care whether their electricity is renewable or not, because the only number you care about is the price per kilowatt hour, um, and uh, whether using renewables then pushes other users onto dirty electricity. And it's a real, um, it's a really vexed, complicated issue. It is, but I think that there are solutions. I don't think it's just. We should give up as a community. I think Bitcoiners might need to look at nuclear energy, uh, clean nuclear energy. That is not as, uh, I know there are a lot of modern um, uh, well, techniques now that, so we don't have to go back to the, you know, the old nuclear power plants, but it's it's a community full of scientists. I think they can figure it out. I, I don't think yeah. it's something that's it's- lost. I, th- I see a lot of argumentation that Bitcoin incentivizes clean energy, but I never see that actually manifest. Like well, I've, I've looked at a lot of people who claimed made claims about this. There was like a one company reviving a dam in upstate New York where they could um, use the hydroelectric power from that. And I looked into that case, and it turned out that this thing never happened, and everyone was suing everyone. That sort of thing. Um, I <laughs> Sounds don't, like Bitcoin. <laughs> I. I one thing in the entire cryptocurrency and blockchain space is never, ever have faith in any claim that literally doesn't exist right now. If it's coming in six months, then it doesn't exist and you shouldn't take it seriously. You say, good, that sounds nice. Tell me when you've got it. Um, because so much stuff just just never happens. You see this over and over. Um, it's like, good let's see how it goes, but I'm not going to take it as being a fact until it's literally there in front of me observable, you know? Well, I think the fact that we now have a network that's a couple billion dollars, uh, I think there's a lot of incentive to make sure that it works. And yep. there, there are a lot of people with a lot of money at stake. So I think that um, we're going to see some solutions come about it just may not be as quickly as we want. 
with everything, right? Uh, it, it, things take time. So I oh, think this is something that we'll see, we'll see solved. We just may not see it solved tomorrow. But yeah. I think there's some solutions out there. I, mean, I don't know how to get off. I mean, the whole point of proof of work is it was the only way that Satoshi could think of to um, solve the decentralization problem. Perhaps there's another way, but it's been 10 years and people have been trying really hard. I know there's a lot of people who are trying approaches to this problem. And the best, the worst ones say, yeah, we're working on this. We've released a white paper full of abstruse mathematics. And by the way, you should buy our token. Now, if you hear one of those, you think they probably want you to buy the token. Um, the best ones are all the ones who say, here's our paper. Don't take us any notice of us until we actually release this and you can kick it. Okay. Those guys you should take seriously. Yeah. Well, there is proof of stake and there are arguments for that. And, um, and, and that's valid. I think their way of doing it is valid, but another, and this is getting a little esoteric as some Bitcoiners contend to get, they believe that proof of work is, um, is the energy that's needed. I mean, we live in this dimension <laughs> that requires energy to be expended for anything. And energy is, you know, you know, if you're into science, it's, um, it, it can't be destroyed or it's, it's continually being recycled, in other words. And if Bitcoin is money, and if you look at the word current, right, which is electricity, it's very similar to currency. So that electricity this is, getting a bit is being converted to money. Pardon? <laughs> it's getting a bit esoteric. It is. It is getting esoteric. But, you know, I, I'm, just, I'm just saying what's out there, right? I'm saying how some people yeah. feel about this and why they can justify the incredible amounts of energy that's expended. But I mean, um, the, the cynical view is that Bitcoin is worth a certain amount of money. They want it to stay worth a certain amount of money. Bitcoin is not moving off proof of work. Therefore, proof of work must be justified using whatever there is to hand. That's a cynical view, but it's one that should be considered as well. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think if it replaces, which I think it will, a portion of our banking. Okay. Not all of it, obviously, because I think lending and all of these type of things will still exist like really big projects. Um, it's, you know, you're going to have to borrow money from the bank, but if, if it replaces a certain portion of the payments network that we have globally, if it, uh, and I think it will, that's why I'm bullish. Uh, I, and because it's programmable, programmable money, more and more governments around the world, I think, are going to figure out that they can use this network as a hedge against U.S. dominance. It's just going to happen, I, I believe. you know. And, and right now, the U.S. dollar is the reserve note globally. And, and more and more people are starting to question that based on a lot of various reasons. So and I think Bitcoin's really very strategically positioned to uh, for small nations who have uh, been screwed, pardon the expression, for them to look at another alternative. And the fact that we can send money, you know, to, to someone across the world um, without a middleman, without counterparty risk, to me, that's huge. 
that's a huge development. And I think you have huge counterparty risk, though, which is why it's irreversible transactions is such a problem. Well, you know, it it depends on what you're using it for. Again, it's cash, you know, so you kind of have to think of it that way. And I think that's a paradigm that a lot of people have a problem adjusting. This is a this is a a, um, it's it's like cash. It's digital cash. You know, and what it is, is it's an invention for the digital age. It's an invention for how we're living now. And everything changes. Everything evolves. There's no reason to think that finance is going to be immune from that. It's not. Um, So I'm in the United Kingdom. We have, um, when you say cash, uh, cash in practice increasingly, like, tends to be our actual card hooked to our bank account. And that's the cash that people use. There are, I go entire weeks without ever using physical cash. Um, and you can transmit it between people. If you know their account, you can send, the, send money via faster payments. It's there instantly. Um, it's still a bit fiddly. But if you talk about cash and digital cash, like we have a pretty good one right now. Um, so I find that a lot of arguments about, but if only we had this, this is the stuff that we do better than banking. It's a lot of cases... I don't know how it is in Canada. I know in America, the banking system is incredibly creaky and annoying to use because you're talking about 51 different jurisdictions um, and it's hard to satisfy all of them. But in Europe, um, it works really well. It does. And I think and I think initially Bitcoin really, you know, uh, Bitcoin advocates were really excited about the application in developing countries because you're right. Most people in Europe and here in Canada and the U.S., we don't really have that much pain when it comes to our, our payment sure. system. You know, we're, we're pretty good and, and it works. We don't really have the need. But I don't think that that's the majority of the world, right? It's, it's hard for us to think outside of our little bubble. Yeah, we, we have it great. But there are a lot of people in a lot of countries that don't have it the way we have it. I and see. so... The idea of banking the unbanked, this meme only came into Bitcoin around 2013, 2014. I traced it back. It was originally adopted from, um, it was a phrase that was used in um, international development, like non-profit organizations um, working in uh, poorer countries, working out how to bank the unbanked, how to get them into the system. So it turns out the actual answer in, say, in a lot of African countries, for example, turns out to be something like M-Pesa. We yeah. have a banking system which works via your phone, and this does the job for them. Um, so, it does. Saying banking the unbanks, I've never seen someone set out a mechanism for how this would actually work in practice. It, it never gets beyond phrase stage. I think people think that in these countries, they're there's no middle class. Okay. And, and my background, you know, I've lived in Africa. My dad is African. There, there is a middle class and the, and the, and the middle class, and I'm not talking about, you know, the people, the dirt poor people, the unbanked quote unquote, but there's a middle class who more and more are looking at alternatives to help them with the, um, the inflation of their own currency. Okay. Of the, of the, and Zimbabwe is the perfect example. Um, I know a lot of Nigerians are really interested in Bitcoin for this particular reason. In fact, Nigeria is the fifth largest Bitcoin OTC market. 
imagine. And and it's not all, you know, the the billionaires that you see on the Forbes list. They're probably not. They probably don't own Bitcoin. It's the 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 middle class, as small as it might be compared to the rest of their 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 uh, their population. They still exist. It's the Mexican middle class. It's the it's the Argentinian middle class. There are a lot of middle class people who have had to um, really be the you know just succumb to the irresponsible financial and fiscal policies of their governments. And Bitcoin is an alternative. If you talk about you know leaving these countries, it's very hard. And this is where the gold bugs get annoyed, but it's the truth. It's hard to it's hard to lug your gold with you across the border. It can it can be easily confiscated. With Bitcoin, you can actually have your private keys, and this is something else that's important to know. You can memorize your your seed word, which is a private key. So you can cross the border with, you know, if you have five million dollars, you can cross the border with your five million dollars because it's in your brain, it's in your head. And, and so there's a lot of, um, I think we're very myopic about what the use cases are because we don't have the same struggles in, in, in the Western world that a lot of other people do. It's a good question, but I think a lot of this is very hypothetical and forward looking. I mean, I won't say it's impossible, but again, as I said, show me, you know. So, I mean, there is a small number of people doing this, but in terms of any, in terms of comparison to the people in the country, it's it's almost invisible. It's negligible. No, I, I don't know. I, I beg to differ. I think I think you're okay. going to see a rise of. Yeah, I, I do. I, I do beg to differ. I think there's a lot, there are a lot more people in these, um, whether it's in you know so called quote unquote third world countries or emerging markets or even um, sort of the second, the, 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 they're, they're not necessarily at the level that we, that our Western countries are at, but they're at um, maybe like our, an Argentina, you know, or, or um, you know, an Ecuador. They, I think there's a sizable enough population that is, is it hasn't reached mass adoption as people had perhaps thought it would. Um, but again, I think that it takes time, you know, and I think the network really wasn't equipped to meet all of those demands, right. Based on the speed. And this is why Bitcoin has to be scaled upward the way the internet was scaled upward. And so this is happening with lightning, but I think that these, these things are, it's a slower process than most people would have hoped. Um, but I think that I'd, I'd give it five to 10 years. I think we're going to see a completely different Bitcoin network that will really fulfill a lot of the dreams that the early Bitcoiners wanted. It's just, you know, it's going to take 20 years. It's going to take another 10 years. Maybe. Um I mean, I won't say it's impossible, but as I said, um, I'll believe it when I see it. Which yeah, and 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 you know what, we're we're young enough <laughs> that I think we will be able to see it. I don't okay. think it's going to take another fifty years. I think we're going to be around. Um, if Twitter's still around, we'll be tweeting about this. And and uh, I think it, you know, speaking of Twitter, 
you know, Jack Dorsey is a huge Bitcoiner and, and um, what's his company? Square. Square now has uh, Square Crypto, which I think is super cool. And so they're also building and contributing to the network. And if a company like Square can look at Bitcoin and say, you know, we see potential in this, we see a future in this, and, and this is a payments company, I think that speaks a lot to how far we've come. So I th- I'm not I'm not so sure about that one because what we've seen in the last five years, um, this actually started after the um, 2013 Bitcoin bubble popped, was a lot of people trying to transpose to, well, forget Bitcoin. Now let's try blockchain for the enterprise. You saw so many huge companies hugely interested in this thing and you're seeing very few use cases for it because it turns out that hype has a life of its own. A lot of them poured a lot of money into it, but you're seeing very few production use cases. And the ones you do see are often heavily subsidized by the company trying to sell it. So corporate interest is, mm, it, it, it may indicate promise, but again, it's still not producing the thing. Well, the problem with the corporate interest is that they were excited about the blockchain as opposed to, which is permissionless and open source. So they were excited about uh, permissioned and closed blockchain, similar to the intranet and the internet. So a lot of their projects have actually failed because they are permissioned and they are closed. What makes Square really unique and different is they are corporate, but they're excited about the permissionless and the open source blockchain, which is Bitcoin. And, you know, again, that word gets thrown around a lot. And and I said this on another podcast. Unfortunately, Satoshi did not distinguish between the payment network, which is Bitcoin with a capital B, and the currency, which is uh, lowercase b. Okay, he used the same word. So not very, not a good marketer. Brilliant. I mean, not good he, at marketing. So He didn't even um, call it a blockchain. He just used the words blockchain somewhere in the source code. Yeah, chain of blocks. Exactly. The, the white paper actually says it called it a chain of blocks. I don't even think it was, you know, maybe exactly. blockchain was mentioned once. So so this notion of, um, and really the, 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 the currency is the incentive to secure the Bitcoin blockchain. So Square gets this. Square understands that the currency is tied to the actual blockchain, you know, and other companies did not understand this. In fact, they wanted to distance distance themselves from Bitcoin. And that was the, the mistake they made. So similar to the internet, I think that these corporate companies are going to realize, oh, we made a mistake. Let's build on top whatever application that they want to build, let's build on top of the Bitcoin protocol. Let's build on top of the blockchain, right? The real quote unquote blockchain, which is Bitcoin. Although I'm not a maximalist, so I do believe in other uh, blockchains that have a different use case. But I think the most dominant uh, is the Bitcoin blockchain. And I think a lot of these corporations are going to come back to Bitcoin 
and build it, build on it and use it as a proof of even a proof of existence. And what, what's really exciting about what's happening in lightning is lightning is actually building an agnostic um, protocol so that other currencies, other projects can build on top of them, right? And, and use the network. And so the, the, the Bitcoin blockchain will act as an arbiter. It's going to actually be the, the, uh, the settlements layer as opposed to, you know, using it to, to, to send, um, you know, to, to buy coffee or whatever you'll use lightning to buy coffee, but the, but the lower layer will actually be the settlement layer. And, uh, Max Kaiser, who's hilarious described using this, the, the bottom layer, the blockchain to buy coffee is, you know, using a fighter pilot jet to go buy, to literally like go to the corner store. I mean, it's just crazy. Like it's, you don't need, it's overkill, you know? So it's important that we build on top of it. And I think corporations, once lightning really takes off and we're using it more, I think those corporations are going to come back and think, okay, you know what? We can actually build on top of this similar to the internet. And, and yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have a number of doubts about Lightning Network. It's like there's a lot of problems they just haven't solved and don't seem to really know how to address. Like the problems I see with it, it's... So the idea of putting a second layer on top, fine, that sounds like a plausible idea. Um, I'm not sure Lightning Network is it. Maybe someone will come up with a better idea. Problems with Lightning Network, they still have not solved the pathfinding problem. How to get from arbitrary point A to arbitrary point B. This is literally an unsolved problem in mathematics. I say this and I get Lightning Network advocates saying, oh, it's only beta software. And I have to go, no, 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 this is mathematics. You literally haven't solved the mathematical problem. You can't just write code until it magically solves itself, you know? They don't understand the problem. So the only solution is if you have a sort of collapsed version of the network where you have like two or three massive super nodes which everyone connects to and that way you can find paths easily um, you know call the nodes Visa Lightning MasterCard Lightning PayPal Lightning or the equivalents when that comes on um, the other problem and this is one which you should look up there was a company called Lyke L-Y-K-K-E yeah, yeah. they, they tried Swiss company, right? I think from Swedish, I, know, I think, or something or like that. Yeah, but, um, somewhere Scandinavian. Mm -hmm. They had endless. The actual economic model for Lightning is channel networks. We have prepaid channels that you use to transact on. They tried this and they found that it really didn't even work out, even in a centralized model. Um, there was a there's a blog post they wrote about this, which we're going to look up. Um, they ended up having endless liquidity problems keeping the channels charged. Um, so I'm not sanguine that Lightning will be the problem. There's people trying to push it along and get it to go and push this thing and make it look viable. But I don't think it'll work without people pushing super hard. Like in computer networking, there's a phrase, with sufficient thrust, pigs fly just fine. So, um, but you can't attach a rocket to the to the pig and then say, oh, look how well it's flying. So I don't think that Lightning Network, as we have it as conceived, will actually solve the problems it's set for itself. You know, I, I, I don't know enough about the, the Lecky um, 
case study and that's something I'll look up and read about, but I run a lightning node myself and I'm actually trying to, um, you know, run a couple tests myself. I just have the node. I have a couple channels open. I have them loaded, but I haven't actually sent any payments. So I, totally. I can't address anything you said because I need to run those tests oh, myself. Absolutely. I'm sure that people will immediately follow us up saying, oh, he's wrong about it because X, Y, and Z. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. I will send you the link about uh, what the guy from Licky wrote as well. Yeah, I just know conceptually that what it does is it, um, it routes the payments similar to the way information packets are routed on the internet. So that's the, the model that they're using. And, but I don't know how that works yet. So I have to do some tests and, I'll, and, and in fact, I'm going to do a podcast uh, about, you know, some of the tests that I do with lightning. So stay so tuned for that. There's um, a reasonably comprehensible video by Rick Falkvinge, two videos he did about lightning network about how, in the original Nightly Network white paper, they literally didn't seem to understand the problem of getting from random boy A to random point B. They compare it to internet routing, but that's completely trust-based. Like, the thing that gets a, a, gets a piece of data from, say, your random computer to some other random computer, like, say, we're doing a podcast and we're recording it, um, it's um, called... The protocol's called BGP, it's completely trust-based. That is, a whole bunch of tel- phone companies who run the internet providers trust each other's word on what they're going to do with internet packets. And when it breaks, which it breaks a lot, a whole bunch of surly telecoms network engineers in black grumble and get up in the middle of the night and fix it. <laughs> um, this is probably not... This is, this is not a self-sustaining, stable system. But it's what we have, and it sort of muddles forth, and it's good enough to keep the internet going. But, yeah. Well, I think some of the things, what I've read, again, I don't know if this works yet because sure. I haven't done it, but I know that they that the, the Onion Network, so the Tor, I think it's called Tor, is being used um, with Lightning. And what that does, and this is, you know, trustlessness is is the ethos of Bitcoin, right? You don't trust anybody. You verify, you verify as opposed to trust. So what happens is when you send a a payment through the channels, what happens is it's actually encrypted at each point of, of of going through the node. So it it gets, it gets wrapped up like an onion. Hence the the term onion network, I guess is why they call it that. So each step of, the process, the node only knows the information or, or it, it knows its destination, but it doesn't know where the information originated from and it doesn't know the final destination. It just knows the destination ahead. So that's, I think, how they're solving that issue of trust is that they're using the Tor network, uh, I guess, code. They're using the Tor code to encrypt the information so it, that, hand, that takes care of the trustless issue. issue. Does that make it's, sense? Yeah, sort of. It's more, it's more of an analogy they're using than actually literally using the Tor network. No, yeah. I, they are using the Tor. They're using oh, really? the, encryption, the encryption technology of Tor. So they're encrypting. So each, each, um, each node, each channel only knows the, 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 what, what to do next. They don't know where it came from and they don't know where it's going. That, that, your, that particular node. 
so it does. So we we don't need to trust. Um, we don't need a trust the trusted parties the way you just described. That you know, IPs and and the net the internet sort of has a trusted system. So that is what is addressed. Is I mean, thank God for encryption, right? Because I think without encryption, Bitcoin wouldn't work. This whole yeah. experiment would not work if it weren't for for uh, cryptography. It's a whole basis for what we're doing. So I think that that addresses that issue. Somewhat. I mean, in practice, they haven't really solved the pathfinding problem except with flooding the entire network with all transactions as they happen, which sends privacy out the window. It, it's a it's a really difficult problem they've set themselves. You know. I don't think the light. I think the Lightning Network will proceed as long as people are trying to push it along and make it work. But it's already centralised. Biggest liquidity providers. There's like one company providing like sixty percent of liquidity. So it's a hard one. There was an article in the Block about this. Yeah, the liquidity is a huge problem across the board in this space. That I agree with. We have to figure out how to solve liquidity issues and there there was a recent article that came about with you know all of the wash trading uh with a lot of the exchanges and there are only like 10 or so exchanges that are really legit and have most of the volume a lot of the volumes fake so yeah liquidity uh volume all of that all of these problems i think are solvable and it's just going to take some time again lightning is in early, early beta, I mean, 1995 internet, I would say. So we have a ways to go. Um, but I think that the progress that they've made so far is huge because people like me, um, I'm able to run a node and I don't know, code, right. right? So it, they've come a long way. And, and the interface, um, the user experience, they're taking that more seriously. As you know, that was not taken into consideration at all, practically at the lower layer, right? So the second layer and even the third layer, I think is going to make more of an effort to make it a little bit more user-friendly and not so intimidating to, to, to join. Mm. Um, but the, no, other consideration, the other consideration there is that if you have a Bitcoin's worth of value on the Lightning Network, that is not a Bitcoin. It, it's like a banknote representing one Bitcoin. So at that point, you've invented a credit-based system. Um, this is as credit-based as it was when the Bank of England started issuing banknotes for their gold. And it eventually reached a stage where the actual economy ran on the banknotes and the gold was an annoying extra, which is why gold isn't actually the basis of the economy anymore. Um, I, it, it would be really weird if that happened with uh, Bitcoin back to Lightning Network as well. No, what's actually happening, I'll explain that. That's a huge misconception. So this I've done. So what you do is you fund your channels. And so there is Bitcoin, although because the network is, you know, still in beta, they don't recommend that you send, you, you know, you send small Satoshis, right? Oh, totally, totally, yeah. Which, which, because it's still, we're still testing. So Satoshis is, you know, it's like fractions of a penny, right? It's, it's, it's tiny amounts that you can send, or you can send $4. I actually funded my channels with $4. Um, and um, the, the Lightning Network really acts as a, as a checking account. And, and that's the best way to describe it. And then your savings that you don't touch 
would be on the lower layer. And if there are any disputes on the lightning network, which there might be, the truth, as you know, is on the first layer, the Bitcoin network. And that would be the disputes are settled on the lower layer. So the, the lower layer acts as an arbiter. So it's, it's a really well-designed system. It's just, we're still in beta. We're still testing. I'm sure we're going to find bugs because it's software. There's, there are going to be issues. But I think that these things can be worked out. And I think that we're moving a lot farther along than people think. And the most exciting use case, I think, for Lightning is the microtransactions because you can send a penny. You can send fractions of a penny. You can start tipping uh, people and for 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 tweets and you can you know we we have a micro nobody knows how to solve the microtransaction problem until now i think lightning is a really good payments system for microtransactions so i'm hoping that that's what we see is the first case use case i think even the um in my other podcast i talked about uh machines using Lightning, I think that that we're going to see that as well, where machines are paying each other and sort of servicing themselves. I think that's another really good use case. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. We're still really early on in the process, but I'm excited about it. Yeah. So that being said, I think we should wrap things up. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think you know you made some really valid points, and I think that it helps people like myself to understand the network and the protocol more when I hear the other side's arguments that, and I think totally. a lot of them are valid. So, so thanks for, thanks for coming on. So where do we find you? Tell, tell us a little bit about, you know, where can our listeners find your work? So um, I write on a blog, um, my news blog, attack of the 50 foot blockchain, which was named after the book because it was originally the webpage of the book. Um, basically covering crypto stuff. I'm working on my next book, which is the working title, World's Worst ICOs. So you can bet I've got a lot of great material there. Um, some of them are just absolutely inane, which is fantastic. It should be amusing. And I'm on Twitter as David Gerard. Um, I'll give you the link and stuff. And, I mean, I expect that the cryptocurrency space will be around for ages, so... We'll see how things go. I'm sure it'll be interesting. Great. Well, lovely. Well, thank you again. And thank you, listeners. We will see you next week. Thank you. The views and opinions expressed on any program are those of the hosts, co-hosts, and guests appearing on the show and do not necessarily reflect the view of the owners and producers of the show. Paid advertisements in form of audio announcements may appear throughout the show, including this one. Advertising can also include print and other digital formats. The owners and producers of Around the Coin do not endorse or evaluate the advertised product, service, or company, nor any of the claims made by the advertisement. All programs are subject to a one-time charge for professional editing fees, for which the interviewing guest or guests may have contributed towards. The owners, producers, hosts, co-hosts, and guests on the show are not financial advisors. Any investment advice or opinion cited during the show is for information purposes only. None of the content is intended to be investment advice. Seek a duly licensed professional for investment advice. 
if you believe there's been any violation of your copyright, trademark, service mark, or any other type of intellectual property, please inform us in writing by sending an email to legal at aroundthecoin.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.